Hey everyone, this episode is probably one of the most impactful episodes I've ever done. I interviewed a Holocaust survivor and the granddaughter of a Holocaust survivor. This story is one of survival, resiliency, and courage. There's going to be some clips that you're going to hear throughout the episode of Dana's grandfather, who is a Holocaust survivor and spent many years in Auschwitz. And unfortunately, he's 101. He has a very, very deep Polish accent, so it was better to use clips from a previous interview. I also want you to bear with the audio because there are some parts of the audio that are a little difficult to hear, but this story is worth listening to. This story is so impactful and it's so rare that we don't don't get a chance to hear many stories of Holocaust survivors. And I really would encourage all of you to take the time to listen to this episode as their stories deserve to be heard. Okay, let's start the episode. Welcome back everyone to Diary of an Empath. Today, I am honored to have two very special guests with me. My first guest is Leo Almond. He is a survivor of one of the darkest chapters in human history, a witness to unimaginable horrors and an inspiration to us all. He is also the author of the book, 796 Days, telling his story of the Holocaust experience. And he is also a lawyer graduating from Harvard with a distinguished career and a powerful voice for justice and compassion. And last but not least, he's a Marine just like me. So Semper Fi, love mm-hmm. that we have a fellow Marine on the show. My second guest is Dana Arshin. She is an Emmy awarded journalist and news correspondent and frequently speaks about the Holocaust and the importance of keeping its memory alive. She has a personal connection to the Holocaust as her grandparents and great-grandparents were all survivors of the Nazi concentration camps. In addition to her work as a journalist, Dana is also a Holocaust educator and storyteller, sharing her family's experiences and helping her to ensure that the stories of those who lived through the Holocaust are never forgotten. She has spoken at various events and conferences about the importance of the Holocaust education and the need to combat hate and prejudice in all forms. So Dana and Leo, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us. We really appreciate it. And we're just so grateful that you have taken an interest in the Holocaust and that this is something that you feel like your viewers, your listeners find a rewarding episode. So thank you so much. I'm super excited because I feel like this needs to be told more. Um, We see sometimes we like the documentaries on Netflix and we but we don't learn about it in school. Like I don't remember sitting in school at any point learning about the Holocaust. And it was such a important and devastating time in our life. And it wasn't that long ago to think that it wasn't even 100 years hasn't even passed. So um, Leo, I would love to start with you, because I know that you know, your ties with the Holocaust, you experienced a lot of this firsthand with you and your family. So I would love to know a little bit about your upbringing, your parents, and where you're from. I'm not sure I know that much about my upbringing. I do know my parents. Um, I was born in 1939. My parents had actually been in the U.S. on a traineeship arrangement that my father had, and they came back to Holland when my uh, mother became pregnant, pregnant with me. And um, I was born in July of 1939 at a point where my parents thought that going back to Holland, even though Hitler had opened up an eastern front in Europe, that Holland would never be attacked, even if he opened up a front uh, in Western Europe. Because Holland had been neutral during World War One. 
and as late as September of 1939, Hitler promised that he would not attack Holland because of its neutrality, and they thought they'd be safe coming back to Holland and giving birth to, uh, to their son. And notwithstanding all of that, uh, after I was born, um, in July, I'm sorry, in May of 1940, Hitler um, attacked Holland and he bombed the city of Rotterdam to smithereens. And um, suddenly we were in a situation that my parents had not contemplated. Um, At any rate, during those first couple of days after Hitler bombed Rotterdam, uh, we had a chance to escape. Uh, we went to a fishing port, tried to get on a boat, but it was utter chaos. And I had an earache. My grandmother had a toothache. And we decided we'd try to escape on another day. And we went back to our apartment in Amsterdam. And within a couple of days, uh, the Germans sealed the borders threatened to bomb the rest of Holland. Uh, The Queen of Holland left with a British uh, destroyer, and uh, Holland gave up, and we were not able to get out. We went back to our apartment. For a while, we thought uh, it would be okay, but suddenly in Holland, in early May or shortly thereafter, Hitler appointed a man named Seiss Ankwart, to be the governor of Holland, he came in, he had been the governor of Austria, very close to Hitler, a roaring anti-Semite, and he took over Holland, and soon our lives would change dramatically. Decrees started coming, everybody who was Jewish had to move to Amsterdam, uh, suddenly in our apartment where it was just my parents and I, uh, we had eight people great-grandmother, grandparents, aunts, uncles, and we had to uh, fill out forms of everything we owned that had any value, and including up to uh, gold tooth possessions. My father lost his job, but we were, we were still alive. And then uh, more decrees came. We were not allowed to use public transportation. We were not allowed to go to public schools. We were not allowed to have bicycles, cars, motorcycles. We were not allowed to have telephones, radios. Life became more difficult, but again, we were still alive. By 1942 and 43, certainly during the summer of 42, when deportation started, where Germans sent Dutch people to concentration camps, in Germany and elsewhere, things became very, very difficult. We had to wear, of course, the Jewish star. Uh, It demonized us. We were not uh, allowed to deal with anybody who was not Jewish. We were not allowed to go to grocery stores. We were not allowed, of course, to go to schools or theaters or anything of the sort. And life became more difficult and more difficult. And at a given moment, my father received a notice that he was to report for a work camp in Germany. 
It was the same time that uh, Margo Frank received the same notice. And my father uh, went to the train station where we were supposed to report. And he saw that people were being pushed into cattle cars. And they weren't just young, healthy people. It was mm-hmm. children and invalids and elderly and just people who didn't look like they would survive a work camp. And at that point, uh, he had started to make that decision that they had to go into hiding. At the same time, my mother's sister, whose husband was active in the resistance, was picked up and jailed and ultimately sent to concentration camps. And at that point, they made the decision that they absolutely had to go into hiding. That was a really difficult decision because my mother had come from a very wealthy family in the diamond cutting business. They lived a very, very good life. Uh, They had cars, they had chauffeurs, they had maids and helpers. Um, My father had come from a good family, not as well to do. Uh, He was German. Um, and he came to Holland, got a job in the department store. And um, suddenly, after the two married, and they married in the Jewish synagogue in Amsterdam, uh, suddenly their lives were, were worthless. Uh, my mother said the decision to go into hiding was a decision like uh, deciding to come to live like rats. Wow. It was very difficult, but it was a decision that my parents made. It's a very, very difficult decision to go into hiding and suddenly be underground. But um, they had to decide what to do with me. Um, I was at that point three years old. I think a fairly normal child who made noise and uh, and ran around and screamed every once in a while, cried. They couldn't take me into their hiding place. So they made that decision at that point uh, that they had to give me up uh, in order to save my life and save their lives and to give me up to the resistance. And the resistance, uh, in this case, was a minister in the city of Harlem who placed Jewish kids. The intermediary was a woman who was a sorority sister of my mother. And she made that contact. And they suddenly had a situation where my parents were able to find a hiding place. My mother had arranged it because she had done social work and one of her clients um, had an attic on the main street in Amsterdam that they were willing to rent out to my parents. And they found a place for me through the resistance. And that turned out to be a young man who lived in a suburb. I went there. Uh, I was weaned away over a period of days or weeks. Um, but I went there and um, lived briefly with that man and his wife. Um, his marriage fell apart. And so I went to a sort of orphanage. And while in that orphanage, The father of that young man uh, came to get me. He got a special pass. He was a retired policeman. He got a pass to go through the German lines with a bike 
to go north of Amsterdam to the orphanage where he picked me up and took me to his apartment. And that apartment was in a totally different part of Amsterdam. He didn't know who I was. Uh, he didn't know where I came from. He and his wife knew I was a Jewish kid. And uh, they agreed to take me into uh, their apartment and to take care of me uh, uh, during the war that they probably did not expect to last uh, five years as a kid. And that's where I stayed. That's where I spent my years until I was about six and a half. These were my war parents. I couldn't even imagine what that must have felt like to be separated from your parents at such a young age. Was there a point in time where you guys were reunited? And do you have any memories of you and your parents reuniting? If so, how did you feel at that time? Well, I I don't have a lot of memories about my hiding place with my war parents. But I do remember at the end of the war, it was May 5th, 1940, when the war ended, John 45, when it ended. At that point, I went out more or less for the first time from this apartment where I'd been in hiding for nearly three years. They had dyed my hair blonde and uh, pretended I was a grandchild. At that point, my war parents knew that my real parents, if they had survived, would come to pick me up. And through the resistance, my parents came to learn where I was and that I was alive. And they came to get me. Somehow they got there, appreciate that they had been in a single attic room with one window, no heater light, no electricity. Uh, they were there for almost three years, wow. just in that one room by themselves, not knowing if their son was alive or not. But at any rate, they came to get me, and I didn't remember them. It had been three years. I was three years old when uh, when I went to live with my war parents. It must have been very difficult. I don't remember how difficult it was because I was just a kid, but I do remember that these people came and said that they were my parents, and I didn't know them. Uh, my war parents, as far as I knew, were my parents. They took care of me. Uh, I never knowingly starved. I never knowingly suffered. I didn't know a war was going on. Mm -hmm. um, but at a given moment, these really emaciated, uh, sad-looking parents came and uh, said that they were my parents. It must have been difficult for everyone, uh, for my war parents who, who loved me, uh, for me, because I was comfortable with my war parents, and for my real parents who came to get me, and I didn't know who they were. But over a period of, of weeks, we reunited. Uh, my war parents stayed in my life during those first weeks, months, and even years. And even to this day, even to this last weekend, I've been close to my war parents and their family. But I did go with my real parents, and we went back to Amsterdam first to their hiding place, which was just awful. Uh, and they had saved a can of beans for me, which uh, I proceeded to tell them that I wouldn't eat it. I hated it. Mm -hmm. uh, and they had suffered incredibly uh, uh, through hunger and everything else during their hiding. Um, but at any rate, we, uh, we got together again. 
got a house, a car. My father got his job back. He got some money for the years he didn't work. But they decided at that point, after a while, uh, they wouldn't stay in Holland. My grandmother on my mother's side uh, had come to the U.S. and uh, was living in New York City. She came in 1946. My mother's sister was able to get out of the country with her family in those first days when you could leave on a fishing boat. And they came to Port Washington. My grandmother bought a house for us in Port Washington. And we came to the U.S. in um, December of 1947. And we've been there ever since. I appreciate you so much you sharing these these perspectives. Given that your parents went through so much, do you feel like even though you didn't witness some of what they went through, but just knowing what they went through and their journey, how do you think those experiences shaped your perspective on the world and how you led through your life coming to the U.S.? I don't honestly know how much influence it had. I, my brother and I, uh, my brother was born, my wife figured out nine months after the war ended, so we know how my parents celebrated the end of the war. Um, my brother and I really didn't learn that much about my parents' story. They didn't talk about it at first. And on their wedding anniversary, uh, on their 40th wedding anniversary, my parents decided to tell their story. My mother, who was taking uh, a writing course in adult education, decided to write it up, and she did. And it was cathartic for them. It liberated them to talk about it. And they did, and they told us their whole story. We learned it really mostly at that time. And did it change our lives very much? I don't know. I, I think the critical point for my parents and me when we came to the U.S. was to become assimilated. We did not want to be different anymore, and my parents ultimately gave up their Jewish religion, which a lot of Jewish people who suffered during the war did, in large part because they felt the Jewish God would not do this to these people. For my parents, there may have been other reasons, but the critical thing for me and for them was not to be different. It wasn't so much the Holocaust as such. Uh, it was more that we did not want to ever have to face a situation where people would, be, uh, would demonize us and treat us differently because they felt we were different. So it sounds like that individualism was almost taken away and in a way to survive, they just wanted to assimilate and be like everyone else. So they didn't stand out. And it's such a shame that such a big part of your identity, their identity was lost in a way and taken from them. It sounds like that made such an impact on them because when I hear you talk and you say, well, I, I didn't really know what was going on to that extent. You were young, but it sounds like they did such a good job as parents to try to keep you safe and try to keep you from knowing the circumstances and how terrible everything around you that was going on, because it sounds like they just tried to keep you as safe as they could. Would you agree with that? I do agree. and But I also feel that for them, uh, where they had led such a good life, I mean, they, you know, 
they were never treated differently. My mother was in a sorority that was not a sorority in Holland is a lifetime commitment. It wasn't just a, a college kind of thing. And those people were not Jewish. My father was, you know, uh, comfortable in circumstances where his Jewish background was not a factor. In Holland, there were so few Jews. In fact, Holland in 1940 had about uh, 9 million people and about 145,000 Jewish persons. So it was never a significant minority in terms of the kind of treatment that the Germans gave to their Jews or the Polish, or others. So coming from Holland, it was never that much of a factor. And all of a sudden, we were demonized. And, and people dealing with us could be killed. And uh, the trade union that had a national strike in support of the Jews, which was the only such strike in all of Europe ever, 450 leaders, or young men and leaders of that uh, union movement, were ultimately uh, killed. Wow. So, you know, it's a change that was so dramatic that they never saw it coming, and they were never able to deal with it effectively, except to try to assimilate and not be different. Wow, that's that's such an incredible story. And, you know, fast forward, you guys come to the U.S., you ended up going to law school, you joined the Marine Corps, do you feel like you're, the, seeing the resilience of your family and seeing the resilience of your parents, did that help kind of drive you through going to Harvard, being a Marine? Because that's not an easy accomplishment. I know I was in the Marine Corps. And, you know, that's when you go into the Marines, that's something, you know, that's that's the, the top of the top. And, you know, Harvard is the top of the top. So where do you think that that resilience, that drive comes from? I don't know. I know I uh I didn't fit comfortably in the public schools in Fort Washington. I think I wasn't sufficiently challenged, at least that's what people tell me. And uh, therefore, I, through a recommendation from a Dutch friend, actually, I applied to prep schools and went to Andover. I think that was the most important thing that ever happened to me. Going from Andover to Harvard wasn't a big thing in those days. And I did well at, at, uh, at Andover. I was not a great student at Harvard. I, uh, I majored in, um, majored in lacrosse and my wife and I married while I was a junior at Harvard. And then I started studying. I went to law school. I did well in law school. I also went to business school. I took two summers with 21 credits each and went to my two weeks in Marine Corps each summer. And then got credit for one accounting course at the law school. So I got an MBA also and, and was dean's list there. I, I was smart enough, uh, in courses that were probably, uh, I chose because they were pretty easy. Fair um, enough. <laughs> I never took math or physics or those kind of things. Uh, I stuck to languages and social studies. I was the same way. So that, you know, I did the same thing, went to the Marines really young, ended up in grad school. And, you know, I, I probably got by by the seat of my pants. But, you know, life experiences taught me the most. So I can totally understand that. I, I learned uh, more valuable lessons at the Marine Corps than I did at Harvard by far. Same. Uh, the principal one of which was to keep your mouth shut. 
and just do your work. <laughs> that's right. And that, that of itself was a valuable lesson. Very true. And I have a lot of uh, female vets, female Marines that listen to this podcast. So I'm sure they're probably given a big uh, oorah and semper fi to you right mm-hmm. now. So um, the Marine Corps is definitely, you know, I can agree. I've, I learned probably the most valuable lessons from being in the Marines. And um, I don't think I would be where I'm at today had I have not experienced that time in. And my time, I went, I was 2006 to 2010, but, you know, we were in uh, Afghanistan, Iraq. Uh, war at that time. And so uh, a lot of the life lessons that stuck with me, even from today, go back to my time in the military. So I thank you so much for your service and for um, sharing your story because it's it's so impactful. And I know that this is a story that people need to hear. Dana, I know that you know you have a lot of ties to the Holocaust as well. We talked a little bit briefly before the show, and I know your your poppy, your grandfather, was someone who is very close to you. And from my understanding, he's from Poland. So I would love to hear a little bit about who he was and his time before the war and before the Holocaust and what life was like for him. You all know that I stand by the recommendations that I give. I only give recommendations for products that are ethical and that are going to add value to my audience and something that I personally use. I would never recommend anything that I feel would not be beneficial. I've been using a product from Athletic Greens called AG1 for about two years now, and I recently partnered with them. I use AG1 in the morning, and it's part of my morning routine, and it makes me feel healthy. It makes me feel like I'm ready to go when I'm doing that because I love that I'm nourishing my body. Another thing that I love about AG1 is that it's one product. I don't have to take multiple supplements because before I was taking a bunch and I would forget and I wasn't on top of the things that I was taking. I would miss a few days here and there. So I love that everything is in one product. So if you want to take ownership of your health, today is a good time to start. Athletic Greens is giving you a one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs. Go to www.athleticgreens.com slash empath. That's www.athleticgreens.com slash empath. You will only get the free vitamin D one-year supply and the travel packs by clicking on that link. If you go to their website and order on your own, you're not going to get those free gifts. So make sure you use the link. If you order it, please let me know if you like it, if it's working for you. It's something that I'm going to continue using because your health is your foundation. If you don't take care of your health, everything else will crumble above it. So I'm putting my health as a priority and I want you to do the same as well. Side note, did you guys know that I'm not only a therapist, but I'm also a professional tarot reader? It's not exactly me hovering over a crystal ball telling your future. It's a tool to connect with your guides and your higher self to help you in certain areas of your life. Tarot genuinely changed my life and it can potentially change yours too. Click on the link in this podcast for more info. Okay, back to the podcast. Sure. Yeah. So my poppy uh, has a very different story than Leo. He's a hundred. He turns one hundred and one uh, in two weeks, and I'm going to Florida to celebrate with him. He grew up in a very, very poor family in Polpest, Poland, about an hour north of Warsaw. I don't know if they were poor or it was just because they had eleven children, and uh, it was it was tough to uh, keep that type of lifestyle. Um, but my, my great grandfather, so my poppy's dad came from a long line of rope makers, making rope for horse and buggy, literally anything you can think of. He was one of nine children when the war broke out in, in September of 1939, which is when, uh, the Nazis invaded Poland. And he had two siblings who had actually died before the war. 
which wasn't so uncommon back then because of different medical uh, issues. But um, they were a very, very tight-knit family. They lived in a one-bedroom apartment, all of them. Uh, my poppy would tell stories of Shabbat dinner where they, they would sit at this long communal table. Um, my my great-grandmother would spend all day cooking, and he says they would fight and argue and the totally normal childhood. Um, and it always sounds so fun to me to think of having so many siblings. Uh, they were a very religious family. It's common uh, in the Orthodox world to have so many children. And my great-great-grandfather, my poppy's grandfather, who died the year before my poppy was born, was the chief rabbi of a city in Poland called Stanislava. I, I believe I'm pronouncing it correctly. So he was the chief rabbi, and then his son, so my poppy's uncle, was the chief rabbi after him. So it's incredible to me that I come from this lineage of scholars and this ultra-Orthodox lifestyle. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about my family lineage and learning this story. And I just, I can't even imagine, you know, growing up in that type of world, and I'm truly just fascinated by it. And I've made it my mission to learn my poppy's story inside and out. Let's go fast forward now. You know, you have the Holocaust that's that's happening. Can you describe what happened to your grandfather and his family when the Nazis first invaded his hometown or his area? Yeah, absolutely. And let me say quickly, I know that Leo's family seem to have a really nice existence with their non-Jewish neighbors. Um, while my poppy did have some non-Jewish neighbors who treated them respectfully, there was a lot of anti-Semitism in Poland before the war. He remembers having to walk in the street because the non-Jewish kids would shout, hey, you guys are pigs, you can't walk on the sidewalk with us. So he experienced a lot of anti-Semitism from a young age. When the Nazis first invaded, when they came into Poland and specifically into my poppy's town, they were rounding up all the men that had beards who were visibly Jewish. And they shot and killed them and put them in a mass grave. And my great-grandfather, my poppy's dad, was one of those men who was murdered almost immediately. And my poppy remembers the last time he saw his father, how he was snatched from them and pulled away and looking back at his children with this terrified look on his face. And that was the last time they had ever seen him. And they probably learned that he had been buried in a mass grave. They were in a very small town where it was very easy to be found. So a lot of Jews in small towns were actually slowly making their way to Warsaw, where they had family. I believe there were some, just like in Amsterdam, I know that all the Jews had in, in Holland had to go to Amsterdam, I believe. Uh, I'm not 100% sure that in Poland they were supposed to go to Warsaw as well, um, but it was also easier to hide in Warsaw. And my poppy and his mom and several of his siblings at the time, some of them had already moved away, they were older and married, uh, they were walking to Warsaw for days on end, they were walking at night and hiding during the day. And they finally got there only to be rounded up very quickly and put in the ghetto right outside of Warsaw. People were dying, what can I say, in the sub in subhuman condition, people were dying and there was no medicine, no doctors, nothing. Whoever lasted, lasted. Whoever passed away, died. 
that's what the kind of a lifestyle in the ghetto. The conditions in the ghetto were horrendous and humane. They were crammed into an apartment with a lot of other families, uh, barely any food, terrible, uh, unsanitary conditions. And uh, at some point, the Nazis had said they needed a male from each family to go to a forced labor camp. And my poppy at that age was about 17, 18. He was really the most fit. He was in the best condition to do this, and he bravely volunteered to go. And he went to a camp uh, near the German border called Komar. And there were only about 50 people at that camp, and that's where he spent some time. I will tell you, though, you know, he, he had a very emotional goodbye. He said goodbye to his mother and to several of his children, uh, several of his siblings, not knowing if he'd ever see them again. And he never did. We kissed everybody goodbye. We never knew that I finally ever see the back. We tried to do it. Then I went to, to the first labor camp. It's called a town in Polish. It's called by the German boy. He used to call call mom. Um, out of the nine children, he and three others did survive. Uh, but the other five, and both of his parents were murdered. Um, he went to Colmar and, you know, he's told me a lot of stories that stand out. Uh, the most traumatic one for me that I always think about is that my, every few weeks at, at this camp, the prisoners had to take off their um, clothing that they were wearing, the thin uniforms, and throw them in a boiling pot of hot water. Uh, the reason for that was to disinfect their clothing primarily so that the German guards who were watching over them did not get any diseases. And they did need to keep the prisoners not healthy, but relatively able to work. So every few weeks, they would uh, throw their clothing in this boiling water. And my poppy was actually tasked with working the sewers and cleaning out the sewer system. And he found some rotten potatoes down there. And he found a way to tie just tiny, tiny pieces of potatoes into his, the pocket of the uniform he was wearing. And he would throw it in the boiling water when the time would come. And that's how he'd get a few uh, extra pieces of nourishment uh, to keep him alive. And he did this for as long as he could. And somehow a guard found out. He doesn't know whether you know they saw him doing it, whether he was ratted out. But all he knows is that he was told to start digging his own grave. They put me in on a bench, stretched out, took off my pants, and they gave me about 15 or 16 flogging. And I, sh I hope I wouldn't, I, uh, I wouldn't get this anymore. And then they put on a pot of cold water, and they set me in to take off the pain the, from the whipping. That was because I carried about four or five potatoes in my pants. Not the original food. Everything was substitute. Uh, like they had <coughs> bread. It done from a lot of saw wood. Wood. They saw the dust. The saw dust. You know, there were a lot of splinters in the bread too. In another word, it wasn't pure bread. It was more wood dust from saw, from saw dust than uh, flour. And that's the way, uh, that was the bread. And the tea was um, leaves from trees. And that 
for him, he thought was the very end, which he had worked so hard to stay alive. Like Leo said, he kept his mouth shut and did his work. Uh, he always felt that to survive, you had to listen. You could not be rebellious. Um, and it's hard to feel that way, right? You just want to say, you know, screw you guys. I'm not listening. I'm going to die on my own terms. You know, it was very easy to do that, but he didn't. He always wanted to survive. So here he is finally feeling like he's at the end of his life. He's digging the grave. Um, he's just about done. And a guard asked him to lay down next to the grave to see if he fit. And he lay down and they told him that it still wasn't long enough yet. And they told him to keep digging. I had to go and I dig that grave. I had to lay down straight if it'll fit me. And when everything uh, is done and a day lay there, fortunately it wasn't me. They brought in another guy, a Jew. He was already unconscious from beating and everything. And they, all of us had to come out in the front by the grave. And the German, and the German officer made a speech. What did he say? He said, "Help me out, Juden." Eure Parole ist nur Arbeit. Wenn, ich, wenn ihr nicht Arbeit leisten kann, hat er bei uns keine Werte. I mean, if uh, you want me to translate it in English, listen to me, Jews. By us, you have to work. When you can last your work, when you can com complete your work, or you can work, you have no value to us. And then there came three uh, Gestapo, and they killed him. The, uh, the, which they brought in that guy who was unconscious, and we buried him. It, fortunately, it wasn't for me. And obviously, he'd like to dig slowly, but they're screaming at him, dig faster, dig faster, while they're holding a gun to his head. And when he's almost done, a prisoner nearby, who was probably dehydrated and starving, passed out. And the German guard shot that prisoner who died, Lou him in the grave, and in German said to my poppy, if it's today, you're lucky day. Hmm. So my poppy lived the rest of his life feeling relief and tremendous amount of guilt that he felt, you know, dug a grave for another innocent prisoner. So that to me was a story that I just could never fathom. Um, from there, he was thrown onto a cattle car. I don't know the exact amount of time he was at coma. Um, he was thrown in a cattle car with hundreds of other prisoners, uh, could not breathe, nowhere to use the restroom, standing straight for days and days and days on end, and he arrived at the infamous Auschwitz-Birkenau concentration camp. Um, Auschwitz is where more than a million innocent men, women, and children were murdered. Uh, the largest amount of murders took place at Auschwitz. We arrived, this I can tell you, we arrived in the evening. And they start yelling, screaming to get out. You know, we had such a fear. It was unbelievable, whipping and hitting. We had to take off the civilian clothes. What, right. did, you, what did you see when you first got to Auschwitz? We, we, we knew right away, we saw the um, barbed wire. And, uh, you know, we, we saw the gate, we right near the gate, where it said, Arbat macht frei. He spent only about three months in Birkenau. So Auschwitz has two parts. The main entrance, where you see the famous words, Arbeit macht frei, which means work will set you free. Obviously a very cruel deception. Um, that's Auschwitz one, and that was actually mostly where political prisoners were kept. Auschwitz two, which is called Birkenau, which 
where the most mass murders were done. Um, my poppy arrived at Birkenau. He was face-to-face with notorious Nazi doctor Joseph Mengele, who personally selected every day who would live, who would die. He also personally administered the gas, oftentimes uh, in the gas chambers, and he had a fascination with twins. And he would often inject cancer cells into one twin or um, cut off one twin's ear. And he was always comparing uh, the twin experiments. And actually, I, I interviewed um, an incredible set of a pair of brothers who survived Mangala experiments just a few years ago. Um, and it's, it's very rare to have survived, and let alone both, both siblings survived. Uh, Mangala was selecting us to work. That's right. In Birkenau. What do you remember about him? But then we came with a group of uh, Gestapo. Uh, with Gestapo, with uh, he had a, a cane in his hand, and he pointed out this one over here, and the other soldiers with the dog. They made sure that that guy who was on the left side shouldn't run to the right side. And that's what happened about for one week, every day on the appeal to be selected. Then, for, for fortunate, I was selected with my younger brother to go to work in the Bosnia. We knew where this, we wouldn't go to, to the gas chamber. So, um, yeah, my poppy spent three months in Birkenau, and then from there, he was, as you mentioned quickly, he was reunited with his younger brother, Moisha, in Birkenau, which is one of the best things to happen to him, and both of them did survive the war. My poppy is the only one of his siblings alive. My younger brother, oh, we hugged us, we kissed each other, and he told me the sad story about my two brothers. And I asked him, the, you, were, you, were, you were later with my, with my mother, I mean, when I left for the first one selected to go to Fort Lebekin, what happened? He says he don't know what happened with them. If they took him away, he knew they took him away. So we told me all the story about it, and I didn't expect I would be able to see any of my family again. Um, from Birkenau, he went to an Auschwitz subcamp called Yavorshno, where he spent more than two years. And he did hard labor every day there, working in the coal mine. I mean, I tell this story, just it sounds like it's fiction. Like, how right. can this be real? How could anyone survive? I personally have a circulatory issue called Raynaud's syndrome. It's not that... It's not that serious, but it just, I'm more prone to frostbite than the average person. I mean, I, I wouldn't have lasted two days in, in, a, in January of Poland. I mean, he, he was wearing no socks and, and wooden clogs and walking through the snow. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I mean, he's 101, so his genetics are clearly uh, impressive. <laughs> yes, and you have them, so that's good. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and he tells this story um, in, in the abortion of the subcamp he was in. There was this group of 18 prisoners, mostly non-Jewish um, Czech political prisoners, and they had spent weeks and weeks and weeks building an escape route from one of the barracks to outside the camp. And very close to the end of, of them being finished with this route, they were caught, and all 18 of them were hanged in front of every prisoner in the camp. And they were singing uh, the Czech national anthem and saying, you will not get away with this. Everyone who's witnessing this here today will move to tell the story. We marked at the camp. Suddenly we see all the Gestapo on the roofs with machine guns. 
and there was a long line with uh, wood to, to hang up people uh, with uh, stools underneath. And, and the same story, they, that we are frightened. We thought we were going to wipe us all out. But we had to witness that so they're going to hang those 18 guys, the 18 guys, 18 Czechs. They were mostly uh, well, Jews, a little bit, uh, not too many Jews in Czechs, because they the one who uh, tried to escape from that uh, barrack. And um, they hanged up all the 18. And of course, they made a speech, the Germans, through a speaker, loudspeaker, there were thousands of uh, prisoners to watch the, the hanging. They said, if you will ever think of this running away, or that's what will happen to you. And uh, the prisoners, they start to yell the, the anthem of uh, Czech, you know, that uh, you can't kill us, all of us. We'll remember that one will be alive, we'll remember what you did to us which I can tell you now what happened, what I witnessed, and the Germans know about that too. And that Papi has always made up his mission to live to tell that story. And I mean, I could go on and on and on. I mean, he's, you know, imprisoned for, for years. So uh, the amount of stories he has to tell are just unbelievable. Uh, the number on his arm is uh, 143499. That's a number that I had memorized since I was a little girl. And you, know, you can see I just really, really, really made it my mission. Uh, this work is very personal to me. And if I don't keep these stories alive, if Leo doesn't keep these stories alive, who will ever continue to tell them? And that's why I do that. And I, I know it's rare for a grandchild to be so invested. Um, I'm part of a group called 3GNY for grandkids of survivors. And we always talk about how there's maybe just one from the family. Not that my cousins and my sister, that they're not incredibly interested, but to actually make the time to learn to make it your life's passion, um, it, it's a certain drive. And that's what I do. And I get emotional talking about it. Um, but I, I, I know that this is what I'm meant to be doing. And I don't know if I told Leo this, but my, um, my poppy's youngest sibling, his name was Aaron. He was seven years old when he was murdered. And in the ghetto, he was the bravest little boy. At night, he would sneak under a fence and go in the streets and collect scraps of trash and food and bring it back to feed the family. And he was the only one tiny enough to do that. And what a brave little boy. And uh, I can't even believe that his mom sent him out, but I, I don't know. I mean, that type of hunger, I can't imagine. And she had a lot of other children she had to feed. Right. And uh, he was the only one that was never named after, had anyone named after him. So both, I had two daughters. I didn't know if either would be a boy or a girl. I was surprised until the day came. I just thought that was a fun way to do it. And I always said if it was a girl, her future name would be Arona, named after Aaron, um, his youngest brother. And if it was a boy, the future name would be Aaron. So I had a girl. I named her Arona. And her Hebrew name, her, her English name is Maya. And uh, weeks later, I was at my Poppy's house, and I was uh, with my daughter, Maya. And I actually had traveled to Poland in 2018. You mentioned I won an Emmy Award. My second one was on my journey to Poland. 
and um, I had actually gone to the town hall and my where my copy was from, and I found all these original birth certificates, including Aaron's, and I had gotten them all translated, and I pulled it up, and I started bawling hysterically. I was with my copy. I said, you know, let's read Aaron's uh, birth certificate. So it turns out Aaron was born on July 27th, 1932. My daughter Maya was born July 27th, 2019. And she, I went into labor while I was working at Fox 5 in New York. I was about to go on air with a Jeffrey Epstein story. I was 10 minutes to on air and my water broke. 14 days to my duty. And I believe that this was a sign from Aaron saying, I need this girl needs to share a birthday with her namesake. And if that's not a sign, that's the craziest thing to happen is that I uh, went into labor exactly 14 days early with my daughter, Carlo, at almost 5 p.m., which is almost identical deliveries and labors and everything is my first. And I go into labor, I have the baby, and I had a, a big presentation I was supposed to make that night, but I obviously couldn't do it because it was Holocaust Remembrance Day, Yom HaShoah. Oh, wow. So both of my children have these incredible Holocaust significance yes. um, with their birth dates and their names. And if that's not a sign that I'm meant to I just got goosebumps. Well. I don't, I don't know. That's a, that's a 1000% a sign. I'm very spiritual. And so I feel like our past loved ones will try to initiate dates and signs. And that was 1000% meant to be. That's like I so mean, beautiful. I don't know if I always believe that, but after this, I just, mm-hmm. and I've been talking about Aaron for a whole year, how this is going to be, it was just, it was crazy to me. So yeah, I, I believe that there's something, something pulling me to do this work. And, I feel like little Aaron definitely lives on my daughter. Tell me about when the Americans came to liberate. Did your grandfather, your poppy, did he talk about how he felt, how everyone around them felt? Did they feel like this is it? We, we're we going to survive? Because I also read that there was a lot of people post the Holocaust that they actually didn't survive because they were eating and they were doing all of these things all of a sudden, and it was actually very harmful to them. Um, but take me through that. I would love to hear about his experience once he was liberalized and liberated and how that, how he moved forward from there. Yeah, it's funny. Actually, a lot of American troops started giving food immediately and, and people did get sick and some died because they, their systems weren't used to them. Just just like COVID, right? It takes you a while to figure out this, this crazy phenomenon in front of you and, and how to deal with it. Um, my poppy, unfortunately, had a pretty typical liberation story. Um, he wasn't out of camp and just liberated. Uh, he was forced to go on the death march in January of 1945, right before liberation. And men were dropping left and right, men and women. Um, he were, had to march for days and days in the snow. He um, got terrible infections uh, on his arm, on his feet. He was walking in those wooden clogs. Uh, anyone who couldn't keep up was being shot. It was totally chaotic. The Germans were um, escaping the Russian army who was advancing at that time. And um, it, it was terrible. We started to march. A lot of them uh, couldn't do it. And they killed them right on the spot and they got it. We saw anybody who couldn't walk Right away, they were walking with the with the with the German Lugas with the guns, and right on the spot, they killed them. Left left alone in the garden. It was bitter cold in January. 
we had to wear the wooden shoes with the snow sticking down. We couldn't <coughs> even we couldn't even walk. You know, the the, the legs are very twisting. We walked through the night and they killed uh, a lot of them. A lot of them were killed because they couldn't walk. They were not physically fit to walk. See, kids are really complicated. Just like Leo's story can go on and on and on. His I, I know his liberation story perfectly. It's, it's very long and complicated. Um, I'll, I'll make it short and say that he eventually, during because it's so chaotic, uh, he went into hiding under a haystack while they were on the march. He was then able to um, he joined forces with the British a Jewish British brigade um, that took him under his wing, and um, at that point there was some type of agreement between Germany and Britain where, where political prisoners from England would not be killed. So they pretended that my poppy was part of the British brigade. It's honestly a very complicated story, but uh, mm -hmm. he was then in a in a prisoner of war camp with the British Brigade, and that's where he was eventually liberated by the American Army. And he says he was kissing the ground, he was kissing their feet. Uh, he could not believe it. And for months and months and months after the war ended, he was always looking over his shoulder. Mm -hmm. He couldn't fathom the idea that there wasn't a, a guard or somebody standing, standing behind him with a gun. It took him a really long time to understand freedom again. Um, sure. And he also didn't know if any of his siblings were alive. Moisha, who he reunited with in, in Birkenau, they had been separated, so he didn't know if he had survived. Um, there were newspapers going all over the world saying, you know, like, Natan Rosenberg from Poltest Poland is alive, and that would be sent everywhere. Um, and that's how uh, a lot of Jewish families reconnected after the war, and it took years for many of them to connect in that way. Gave, they gave me a cross to carry a cross, so I shouldn't be noticeable. And, I, and they gave me a name, I should call myself Standish James. That was a British prisoner who died. I should carry his name. And I couldn't speak a word of English. I was with them, but they cleaned me up. I had a British uniform with shoes, with a cross. I tried to show off my cross so nobody should be suspicious. The sign. And everybody asked me, how come you are a young guy? I said, I was a volunteer, volunteer, that's all I knew. We laid out on the street, we start kissing, kissing the soldiers, the tanks, everything. We looked, kept on, I kept on looking all the time if a German is behind me. Since, a long, since five years, you know, being in, um, castrated into a prison camp, so I always thought maybe some Germans are still behind me. It's more than a miracle. It's more than a miracle how I survived. Did you pray to God at all during these years? Well, yes, I still uh, have, I'm not uh, strictly orthodox, but I pray with Trillium uh, every day. You know, uh, I, don't pay, I, I don't skip it. When I go for vacation, I take it, I take it with me. <laughs> I'm not, which, I know whether to tell the brother, but I am considered lucky by living a life like this, losing my family. But very terrible. I don't consider it to be lucky. I want to give my testimony. People shouldn't think when I'll pass away, how long they survive it. Another 10 years, there will be nobody alive. So I want to tell the truth. 
how I went through in life. The people shouldn't see that nothing never happened. Because a lot of people denying it. That it never happened. They're making up stories. The Jew feels pity. They should know this. I'm alive. I can tell some stories. A part of it, not the, the stories, not everything. A part of it, what I've been through. Wow. And some never, never knew. Some never got any closure if their loved ones survived or not and, and never got that closure at all. I, I'm or the so... closure of how they perished. Like, we right. know that little Aaron and my great-grandma and a few of the siblings were all murdered together because they were taken. We believe they were murdered at a site called Babiar in Ukraine, but we don't know for sure, right? So it's not even knowing exactly how they died, which is also so painful. Wow. Um, Liz, question, I actually would like to ask both of you, you know, Leo and Dana, how do you think your experiences shaped your own understanding of the Holocaust? You know, I know that both of you have been around this for so long, but, you know, did these experiences, hearing these stories change your view or your perception on the Holocaust? And how did that change your your view and your perception of the world around you? Yeah, I'm going to let you start. Again, uh, I'm not sure I know the answer. Um, in in my own case, um, as I mentioned earlier, I, you know, I never knew that I was Jewish or that I was different, and we tried not to. Um, at a given moment, I think it was really at Andover that I first realized I was Jewish as a practical matter. And from that point on, I was sensitized to it. Uh, even in the Marine Corps, I went to Paris Island and Me too. There, there were no Jewish people in the Marine Corps and certainly my drill instructors weren't Jewish. So for me, it became uh, a realization that I was Jewish and that I, in some manner, had to deal with that. I don't know that it shaped my life in any certain way. Again, my parents left the religion. I did not grow up Jewish as such. The one thing that I do know is that I was determined to honor and stay with the people who saved me. And as recently as this past weekend, I flew to Holland to honor the funeral of my, what was she? She was the widow of my war brother. She was 93 years old. And in Holland, you can, you can have assisted suicide, which she did because she didn't want to be in pain any longer. And her husband did the same. But I've stayed close to that family forever because where where would we be without them? And yes. I have in my family, we are basically 20 people. Of those 20, uh, 14 would not be here without uh, my having been survived through the efforts of uh, this family. So I've stayed very close to them and it's been meaningful for me. I don't know that it's shaped me in other respects. 
I do believe I'm a survivor, and therefore I'm willing to take on stuff. You know, I, as as uh, Dana knows very well, I uh, I competed in 145 triathlons, wow. uh, including a couple of uh, or three uh, Ironmen and and oh, a good half dozen or more half Ironmen. I'm a survivor. I you know I I figure I can do things uh, and I'll I'll get through it somehow. Um, it's like he says he doesn't know how it affects him, but clearly, yes, I see that. I don't realize like what your parents sacrificed, right, to make sure that you got the best education. To make sure that you got I I life. do know that they sacrificed. Yeah. Uh, so Right. And, it could and, have been much different. It could have been, it could have went all an entire different way. And it, but what I'm hearing from you is that you, you, you realized what the sacrifice was and you wanted to honor that in the best way. And, and look at you lived and ha- and are still living a full life. I mean, you have a huge family. Of course, you're a Marine. Of course, you did triathlons. Not surprised. <laughs> and, you know, you, you, you ran with it. <laughs> I love that. I found the force to be reckoned with. <laughs> He's a Marine. Of course he is. And we, we that's, that's what we do. <laughs> uh, Dana, how about you? How do you feel like this impacted your life? Obviously, you have made this your life's mission to make sure that these stories are told. Why is this so important for you? I, I mean, it's fair to say you don't know, right? Um, I know that keeping my family's stories alive are necessary, right? And, and and to know who I am and to pass that along to my children is something that I, I feel is completely vital. While I wouldn't say I, I'm an observant Jew, um, keeping the traditions alive are really, really important to me. I just, this year, started hosting Shabbat dinners for the first time in my life. Um, not, not often, just once a month if I can. And to me, when I'm lighting the candles, and generally uh, women are the ones to light the candles on, on Shabbat, when I'm lighting the candles knowing that my ancestors did this for generations and generations before me, it's very, very special to feel like I'm keeping their traditions alive, traditions that they were killed for yes. just for practicing. So I feel like the least I can do is keep these traditions alive because the Jewish people, the Jewish culture, and the Jewish religion would not exist. If these traditions didn't continue, so uh, I do what I can um, in, in, in honoring my ancestors, and yeah, I mean it's definitely given me a drive, right, to, to live life to the fullest. I realize how lucky I am, and obviously you can never really fully appreciate every day the way that you should. Um, but as a whole, I just try to be an honest person, a good friend, I'm very direct and upfront. I, I, I say it how it is. I, I don't see the point of being around the bush. Um, I just feel like life is too short, and I just try to appreciate every day. So, um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know if it's my family history that inspired me to do that, but my family history is definitely a big part of who I am and, and, and what I do every day. I love that. On, on my part, if I could add a little coda to it, um, I also feel very strongly uh, that part of my mission is to make sure that the story of the Holocaust in Holland is remembered and is known and acknowledged. Again, the Dutch 
Jewish population was extremely small, and the story of the Holocaust in Holland, which was percentage-wise more brutal than any other country, because there were 145,000 Jews before the war. After the war, there were 10% of that. 75% had been killed during the Holocaust. Wow. That's a percentage that's not equaled anywhere. And yet the story in Holland is not widely known. And I feel that it's my duty, and that's what I've done, uh, to try to keep that story alive in Holland to the extent that I can. I've been involved with the Anne Frank story for many, many years. I was the head of the Anne Frank Center in the U.S. for seven years and on the board for 22 years. Oh, wow. um, I was in contact with the Anne Frank House as recently as this morning. I am the chairman of two foundations honoring uh, Jewish history in Holland and honoring the Holocaust in Holland. And I'm still ahead of those two foundations. I've done a lot with uh, several organizations in this country, including the Center in Washington and the Center in Glen Cove, which we are both involved with. I tell the story at schools all the time and at universities and at synagogues and at other organizations. So I do what I can to keep that story alive. But my story is still very different from the story that you just heard from Dana, which is just an incredible story of Survivor by Poppy. It's just just truly amazing. And and that whole story. But my story isn't one of suffering in the same way, but it's a story that has to be told. Mm -hmm. And I want to add one thing in terms of naming uh, that Dana mentioned. My brother, uh, who passed a couple of years ago, um, his name was Hendrik Jan Ullman, uh, Hank John Ullman. Hendrik was named after my war father, who was Hendrik. Jan is named after my war mother, whose name was Janachia, which is Jan, the first three letters. Again, we have been very close to those people and honored them because they got us through the war. I also want to also distinguish our story, and I try to do that, from that of Anne Frank, because Anne Frank was an immigrant to Holland, and she was in that back room with eight people. They were doomed, and they didn't have the support organization that we had. There were Dutch people who helped save our lives. Uh, the Anne Frank uh, family didn't have that. And she was never Dutch, and uh, they were never Dutch citizens. They didn't speak Dutch. Uh, it's a very different story, and I want to make sure that the story of the Dutch Jews and the Holocaust in Holland is uh, is perpetuated, and that's what I do work on very much. I love that, and I'm so grateful for both of you for coming on the show, sharing both of your unique 
experiences and because obviously there's so many different perspectives to the Holocaust and and people who experienced in different ways. And so I'm just very grateful to be a part of that and to give you both a platform to tell your story. And I'm thankful that you guys are continuing to tell the story of not only your family lineage, but other people who went through the Holocaust as well. So thank you so much to both of you for coming on the show. Of course, thank you so much for finding. He's my partner in crime. We were just on CBS together. Um, but I do have to give a shout out to my museum, um, the Holocaust Memorial and Tolerance Center of Nassau County, HMTC. Uh, they are the ones who are giving me this platform. You know, I, I, I came on as a storyteller. It's not really a, uh, a, a role that exists at most museums, right? I'm like the first ever reporter. So I came to them with this crazy idea that I want to start a channel and and they, they let me go with it, and we're really putting this museum on the map. I'm really trying to reach as many people as possible, and I'm doing long-form pieces of many documentaries. And I just spent about three and a half months working on Leo's. Um, I thought I was finished. I've since edited it like four times since, um, but we have a 10-minute, nine-minute piece on Leo coming out very, very soon. I keep saying this week, this week, this week. I think next week is when I'm going to post it. Um, but I can't wait. I hope you guys will all just, if you just search in Google in a few weeks, Holocaust Survivor, we will all and you will find the story. Um, and just, Carice, thank you for your service. Thank you for your interest. Um, and I, I hope that your listeners, you know, find this you know, valuable and, and please reach out to us. I have a very social, uh, very public social media presence. Ask me any questions. Um, and, and it's, just, it's our honor and our privilege to keep the stories alive. And I'm going to link everything, your foundations, where to find you guys. If the documentary is done, we'll link it below. As a matter of fact, once it's done, I'm going to go ahead and edit and link it anyway. So that way, if anyone comes back later and listens to this or watches this, they just know where to find it and they can, you know, listen to anything. I'll find the link by the end of this week. Yeah, we'll, 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 it's okay. Yeah, we'll definitely make sure everyone gets to it though. So, all right. Thank both of you. You have his story. I mean, this this man hasn't told me about the business and all. Entrepreneur Awards, and I mean, he's amazing. Look, look him up. Um, I mean, he could be here for days, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a pleasure. All right, thank you guys. Thank you very much thank for, you. for listening to us.